Chapter Eight of Storky and Co. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Chapter Eight, The Last Term. It was within a few days of the holidays, the end of term examinations, and more importantly still the issue of the college paper which Beetle edited. He had been cajoled into that office by the blandishments of Storky and McTurk, and the extreme rigour of study law. Once installed, he discovered, as others had done before him, that his duty was to do the work while his friends criticised. Storky christened it the Swillingford Patriot, in pious memory of Sponge. And McTurk, compared the output unfavourably with Ruskin and De Quincey. Only the head took an interest in the publication, and his methods were peculiar. He gave Beetle the run of his brown-bound, tobacco-scented library, prohibiting nothing, recommending nothing. There Beetle found a fat armchair, a silver inkstand, and unlimited pens and paper. There were scores and scores of ancient dramatists, there were Hakluyt, his voyages, French translations of Muscovite authors called Pushkin and Lermontov, little tales of a heady and bewildering nature interspersed with unusual songs. Peacock was that writer's name. There was Borrow's Lavengro, an odd theme, purporting to be a translation of something called a Rubaiyat, which the head said was a poem not yet come into its own. There were hundreds of volumes of verse, Crashaw, Dryden, Alexander Smith, Eliel, Lydia Sigourney, Fletcher, and a purple island Don, Marlowe's Faust, and this made McTurk, to whom Beetle conveyed it, sheer drunk for three days, Ossian, the earthly paradise, Atalanta in Calydon, and Rossetti, to name only a few. Then the head drifting in under the pretense of playing censor to the paper, would read, Here a verse, and here another of these poets, opening up avenues, and, slow breathing, with half-shut eyes above his cigar, he would speak of great men living, and journals long dead, founded in their riotous youth, of years when all the planets were little new-lit stars trying to find their places in an uncaring void, and he, the head, knew them as young men know one another. And so the regular work went to the dogs, Beetle being full of other matters and meters, hoarded in secret and only told to McTurk of an afternoon on the sands, walking high and disposedly around the wreck of the Armada galleons shouting and declaiming against the long-ridged seas, thanks in large part to their housemaster's experienced distrust, the three, for three consecutive terms, had been passed over for promotion to the rank of prefect, an office that went by merit, and carried with it the honour of the ground-ash, and liberty, under restrictions, to use it. But, said Storky, come to think of it, We've done more giddy jesting with the sixth since we've been passed over than any one else in the last seven years." He touched his neck proudly. It was encircled by the stiffest of stick-up collars, which custom decreed could only be worn 
by the sixth, and the sixth saw those collars and said no word. Pussy Abnazar, or Dick Four of a year ago, would have seen them discarded in five minutes, or— But the sixth of that term was made up mostly of young but brilliantly clever boys, pets of the housemasters, too anxious for their dignity to care to come to open odds with the resourceful three. So they crammed their caps on the extreme back of their heads, instead of a trifle over one eye, as the fifth should, and rejoiced in patent leather boots on weekdays, and marvellously made-up ties on Sundays, no man rebuking. McTurk was going up for Cooper's Hill, and Storky for Sandhurst in the spring, and the head had told them both that, unless they absolutely collapsed during the holidays, they were safe. As a trainer of colts, the head seldom erred in an estimate of form. He'd taken Beetle aside that day, and given him much good advice, not one word of which did Beetle remember when he dashed up to the study, white with excitement, and poured out the wondrous tale. It demanded a great belief. "'You begin on a hundred a year?' said McTurk unsympathetically. "'Rot!' "'And my passage out. It's all settled. The head says he's been breaking me in by this for ever so long, and I never knew. I never knew.' I don't begin with writing straight off, you know. Begin by filling in telegrams and cutting things out of papers with scissors. Oh, scissors! What an ungodly mess you'll make of it, said Storky. But anyhow, this'll be your last term, too. Seven years, my dilly beloved eras, though not prefects. Not half bad years, either, said McTurk. I shall be sorry to leave the old coal, shan't you? They looked out over the sea, creaming along the pebble ridge in the clear winter light. "'Wonder where we shall all be this time next year,' said Storky, absently. "'This time in five years,' said McTurk. "'Oh,' said Beetle, "'my leaving's between ourselves. The head hasn't told anyone. I know he hasn't. Because Proud grunted at me today that if I weren't more reasonable, yah, I might be a prefect next term. I suppose he's hard up for his prefects.' "'Let's finish up with a row with the sixth, suggested McTurk. "'Dirty little schoolboys,' said Storky, who already saw himself as a Sandhurst cadet. "'What's the use?' "'Moral effect,' quoth McTurk. "'Leave an imperishable tradition, and all the rest of it.' "'Better to go into Biddeford and pay all our debts,' said Storky. "'I've got three quid out of my father, ad hoc. "'Don't owe more than thirty bob, either. "'Come along, Beetle. "'Ask the head for leave.' "'Say you want to correct the Swillingford Patriot.' "'Well, I do,' said Beetle. "'It'll be my last issue. "'I'd like it to look decent. "'I'll catch him before he goes to his lunch.' Ten minutes later they wheeled out in line, by grace released from five o'clock call-over, and all the afternoon lay before them. So also, unluckily, did King, who never passed without witticisms. But brigades of kings could not have ruffled Beetle that day. "'Aha! Enjoying the study of light literature, my friends,' said he, rubbing his hands. "'Common mathematics are not for such soaring minds as yours, are they?' One hundred a year,' thought Beetle, smiling into vacancy. "'Our open incompetence takes refuge in the flowery paths of inaccurate fiction. But a day of reckoning approaches, Beetle mine.' I myself have been preparing a few trifling, foolish questions in Latin prose, which can hardly be evaded even by your practised acts of deception. 
Yes, Latin prose. I think I may say so. But we shall see when the papers are sent. Ulpian serves your need. Aha! Elucescabat! Quoth our friend. We shall see. We shall see. Still no sign from Beetle. He was on a steamer, his passage paid into the wide and wonderful world, a thousand leagues beyond Lundy Island. King dropped him with a snarl. He doesn't know. He'll go on correcting exercises and jawing and showing off before the little boys next term and next. Beetle hurried after his companions up the steep path of the furze-clad hill behind the college. They were throwing pebbles on the top of the gasometer, and the grimy gas-man in charge bade them desist. They watched him oil a turncock, sunk in the ground between two furze-bushes. "'Cokey, what's that for?' said Storky. "'To turn on the gas in the kitchens,' said Cokey. "'If so be I didn't turn her on, you young gentlemen would be larning your book by candlelight.' "'Um,' said Storky, and was silent for at least a minute. "'Hello! Where are you chaps going?' A bend of the lane brought them face to face with Tulk, senior prefect of King's House, a smallish, white-haired boy, of the type that must be promoted on account of its intellect, and ever afterwards appeals to the head to support its authority when zeal has outrun discretion. The three took no sort of notice. They were on lawful pass. Tulk repeated his question hotly for he had suffered many slights from number five study, and fancied that he had at last caught them tripping. "'What the devil is that to you?' Storky replied, with his sweetest smile. "'Look here, I'm not going, I'm not going to be sworn at by the fifth, spluttered Tulk. "'Then cut along and call a prefect's meeting,' said McTurk, knowing Tulk's weakness. The prefect became inarticulate with rage. "'Mustn't yell at the fifth that way,' said Storky. "'It's vile bad form.' "'Cough it up, Ducky,' said McTurk calmly. "'I—I I want to know what you chaps are doing out of bounds.' This with an important flourish of his ground-ash. "'Ah,' said Storky, "'now we're getting at it. Why didn't you ask that before?' "'Well, I ask it now. What are you doing?' "'We're admiring you, Tulk,' said Storky. "'We think you're no end of a fine chap, don't we?' "'We do, we do!' A dog-cart with some girls in it swept round the corner and Storky promptly kneeled before Tulk in an attitude of prayer. So Tulk turned a colour. "'I've reason to believe,' he began. "'Oh, yea, oh, yea, oh, yea,' shouted Beetle, after the manner of Biddeford's town-crier. "'Tulk has reason to believe. Three cheers for Tulk!' They were given. "'It's all our giddy admiration,' said Storky. "'You know how we love you, Tulk. We love you so much we think you ought to go home and die.' "'You're too good to live, Tulk.' "'Yes,' said McTurk. "'Do oblige us by dying. "'Think how lovely you'd look stuffed.' Tulk swept up the road with an unpleasant glare in his eye. "'That means a prefect's meeting, sure, Pop,' said Storky. "'Honour of the Sixth involved, and all the rest of it. "'Tulk'll write notes all this afternoon, "'and Carson will call us up after tea. "'They daren't overlook that.' "'Betcha, Bob, he follows us,' said McTurk. "'He's King's pet.' and it scalps to both of em if we get caught out. We must be virtuous. Then I move we go to Mother Yew's for a last gorge. We owe her about ten bob, and Mary'll weep sore when she knows we're leaving," said Beetle. Oh, she gave me an awful wipe on the head last time, Mary, 
said Storky. "'She does, if you don't duck,' said McTurk. "'But she generally kisses one back. "'Let's try Mother Yew.' They sought a little bottle-windowed, half-dairy, half-restaurant, a dark-brewed two-hundred-year-old house at the end of a narrow side-street. They had patronized it from the days of their fagdom, and were very much friends at home. "'We've come to pay our debts, mother,' said Storky, sliding his arm round the fifty-six-inch waist of the mistress of the establishment, "'to pay our debts and say good-bye. And—and and we're awfully hungry.' "'Aye,' said Mother Yew, "'making love to me. I'm shamed of ye.' "'Rackin' us wouldn't do no such thing if Mary was here,' said McTurk, lapsing into the broad North Devon that the boys used on their campaigns. "'Home taking my name in vain?' The inner door opened, and Mary, fair-haired, blue-eyed, and apple-cheeked, entered with a bowl of cream in her hands. McTurk kissed her, Beetle followed suit with exemplary calm. Both boys were promptly cuffed. "'Never kiss a maid when he can kiss the mistress,' said Storky, shamelessly winking at Mother Yo, as he investigated a shelf of jams. "'Glad to see one of ye don't want his head slapped no more,' said Mary invitingly in that direction. "'No, I reckon I can get him give me.' said Storky, his back turned. "'Not by me, you little masterpiece.' "'Never asked he. There's maids in Northam. Yes, and Appledore.' An unpronounceable sniff, half contempt, half reminiscence, rounded the retort. "'Ay, you won't never come to no good end. What be bout smelling the cream?' "'Tis bad,' said Storky. "'Smellin'?' Incautiously Mary did as she was bid. "'Bid for a kiss.' "'Never a miss,' said Storky, taking it without injury. "'Yo, yo, yo,' Mary began, bubbling with mirth. "'They ain't better to know them. More rich-like. "'And us gets them give back again,' he said, while McTurk solemnly waltzed Mother Yo out of breath, and Beetle told Mary the sad news, as they sat down to clotted cream, jam, and hot bread. "'Yes, you never see us no more, Mary.' We're going to be passons and missioners. Steady the buffs, said McTurk, looking through the blind. Tulkas followed us. He's coming up the street now. They've never put us out of bounds, said Mother Yo. Bide yo still, my dears. She rolled into the inner room to make the score. Mary, said Storky suddenly with tragic intensity, do he love me, Mary? Yes, fie. "'I tell ye zo, since yo was zo high,' the damsel replied. "'Is he coming up the street, then?' Storky pointed to the unconscious Tulk. "'He've never been kissed by no sort or manner a maid in his born life, Mary. "'Oh, tis shameful! What's to do with me? "'Twill come to un in the way of nature, I reckon.' She nodded her head sagaciously. "'You never want me to kiss un, surely?' "'Give ye half a crown, if he will,' said Storky, exhibiting the coin. Half a crown was much to Mary Yo, but a jest was more. "'But you'm afraid,' said McTurk, at the psychological moment. "'Aye,' Beetle echoed, knowing her weak point. "'There's not a maid to Northam would think twice. "'And you such a fine maid, too!' McTurk planted one foot firmly against the inner door, lest Mother Yo should return inopportunely for Mary's face was set. It was then that Tulk found his way blocked by the tall daughter of Devon, that country of easy kisses, the pleasantest under the sun. 
he dodged aside politely. She reflected a moment, and laid a vast hand upon his shoulder. "'Where be ye gwine to, my dear?' said she. Over the handkerchief he had crammed into his mouth, Storky could see the boy turn scarlet. "'Gee I a kiss! Don't they learn any manners to college?' Tulk gasped and wheeled. Solemnly and conscientiously Mary kissed him twice, and the luckless prefect fled. She stepped into the shop, her eyes full of simple wonder. Keston, said Storky, handing over the money. "'Yes, fie! But, oh, my little body! Eem no colleger! Zeem too minded to cry like!' "'Well, we won't.' "'Yell couldn't make us cry that way,' said McTurk. "'Try!' Whereupon Mary cuffed them all round. As they went out with tingling ears, said Storky generally, "'Don't think there'll be much of a prefect's meeting.' "'Won't there just?' said Beetle. "'Look here, if he kissed her, or which is our tack, he's a cynically immoral hog, and his conduct is blatant indecency. Cofer orationes regis furios issimi. When he collared me reading Don Juan.' "'Course he kissed her,' said McTurk, "'in the middle of the street, with his house-cap on.' Time, 3.57 p.m. Make note of that. What do you mean, Beetle? said Storky. Well, he's a truthful little beast. He may say he was kissed. And then? Why, then, Beetle capered at the mere thought of it, don't you see? The corollary to the giddy proposition is that the Sixth can't protect themselves from outrages and ravishings. Want nursemaids to look after em. We've only got to whisper that to the cull. Jam for the Sixth! jam for us. Either way, it's jammy." "'By gum,' said Storky. "'Our last term's ending well. Now, you cut along and finish up your old rag, and Turkey and me will help. We'll go in the back way. No need to bother Randall.' "'Don't play the giddy garden goat, then.' Beetle knew what help meant, though he was by no means averse to showing his importance before his allies. The little loft behind Randall's printing-office was his own territory where he saw himself already controlling the times. Here, under the guidance of the inky apprentice, he had learned to find his way more or less circuitously about the case, and considered himself an expert compositor. The school paper, in its locked forms, lay on a stone-topped table, a proof by the side. But not for worlds would Beetle have corrected from the mere proof. With a mallet and a pair of tweezers he knocked out mysterious wedges of wood that released the form, picked a letter here and inserted a letter there, reading as he went along, and stopping much to chuckle over his own contributions. "'You won't show off like that,' said McTurk, "'when you've got to do it for your living. Upside down and backwards, is it? Let's see if I can read it.' "'Get out,' said Beetle. "'Go and read those forms in the rack there, if you think you know so much.' "'Forms in a rack? What's that? Don't be so beastly professional.' McTurk drew off with Storky to prowl about the office. They left little unturned. "'Come here a shake, Beetle. What's this thing?' said Storky, in a few minutes. "'Looks familiar,' said Beetle, after a glance. "'It's King's Latin prose exam paper. In invarem mactio prima. What a lark! Think of the pure-souled, high-minded boys who'd give their eyes for a squint at it,' said McTurk. "'No, Willie dear,' said Storky. That would be wrong and painful to our kind teachers. You wouldn't crib, Willie, would you? Can't read the basely stuff anyhow, was the reply. Besides, we're leaving at the end of the term, so it makes no difference to us. Remember what the considerate bloomer did to our Spraggon's account? 
on the Puffington Hounds. We must sugar Mr. King's milk for him, said Stalky, all lighted from within by a devilish joy. Let's see what Beetle can do with those forceps he's so proud of. Don't see how you can make Latin prose much more cockeyed than it is, but we'll try, said Beetle, transposing an aliud and asiae from two sentences. Let's see. We'll put that full stop a little further on, and begin the sentence with the next capital. Hurrah! There's three lines that can move up all in a lump. One of those scientific rests for which this eminent huntsman is so justly celebrated. Storky knew the Puffington run by heart. Hold on! Here's a vol voluntae quidam all by itself, said McTurk. I'll attend to her in a shake. Quidam goes after Dorabella. Good old Dorabella, murmured Storky. Don't break him. Vile prose Cicero wrote, didn't he? He ought to be grateful for— Hello, said McTurk, over another form. What price a giddy ode? Qui quis? Oh, it's quis multa gracilis, of course. Bring it along. We've sugared the milk here, said Storky, after a few minutes' zealous toil. Never thrash your hounds unnecessarily. Quis mutitius? I swear that's not bad, began Beetle, plying the tweezers. Don't that interrogation look pretty? Hugh quotidies fidem. That sounds as if the chap were anxious and excited. Qui flavam religas in rosa, whose flavour is relegated to a rose. Mutatosque deos flebit in antro. Mute gods weeping in a cave, suggested Storky. Pon my Sam, Horace needs as much looking after as Tulk. They edited him faithfully, until it was too dark to see. Ah, Eluscabat, quoth our old friend. Ulpian serves my need, does it? If King can make anything out of that, I'm a blue-eyed squatteroo, said Beetle as they slid out of the loft window into the back alley of old acquaintance, and started on the three-mile trot to the college. But the revision of the classics had detained them too long. They halted, blown and breathless, in the firs at the back of the gasometer, the college lights twinkling below, ten minutes at least late for tea and lock-up. "'It's no good,' puffed McTurk. "'Better Bob, Foxy is waiting for defaulters under the lamp by the fives court. It's a nuisance, too because the head gave us long leave. One doesn't like to break it. Let me now, from the bonded warehouse of my knowledge, began Storgy. Oh, rot, don't jorrock. Can we make a run for it? snapped McTurk. Bishop's boots, Mr. Radcliffe also condemned, and spoke eyely in favour of the tops clean with champagne and apricot jam. Where's that thing Cokey was twiddling with this afternoon? They heard him groping in the wet, and presently beheld a great miracle. The lights of the coastguard cottages near the sea went out. The brilliantly illuminated windows of the golf club disappeared, and were followed by the frontages of the two hotels. Scattered villas dulled, twinkled, and vanished. Last of all, the college lights died also. They were left in the pitchy darkness of a windy winter's night. "'Bless my kidneys! It is a frost! The dahlias are dead!' said Storky. "'Bunk!' They squattered through the dripping gorse as the college hummed like an angry hive, and the dining-rooms chorused, "'Gas! Gas! Gas!' until they came to the edge of the sunk path that divided them from their study. Dropping that ha-ha like bullets, and rebounding like boys, they dashed to their study. In less than two minutes, had changed into dry trousers and coat, and, ostentatiously slippered, joined the mob in the dining-hall. 
which resembled the storm-centre of a South American revolution. "'Hellish dark and smells of cheese!' Storky elbowed his way into the press, howling lustily for gas. "'Cokey must have gone for a walk. Foxy'll have to find him!' Prout, as the nearest housemaster, was trying to restore order, for rude boys were flicking butter-pats across the chaos, and McTurk had turned on the fag's tea-urn, so that many were parboiled and wept with unfeigned doula. The fourth and upper third broke into the school song, and Viva la Compagnie, to the accompaniment of drummed knife-handles, and the junior forms shrilled bat-like shrieks, and raided one another's victuals. Two hundred and fifty boys, in high condition, seeking more light, are truly earnest inquirers. When a most vile smell of gas told them that supplies had been renewed, Storky, waistcoat unbuttoned, sat gorgedly over what might have been his fourth cup of tea. "'And that's all right,' he said. "'Hello! Here's Pomponius Ego!' It was Carson, the head of the school, a simple, straight-minded soul, and a pillar of the first fifteen, who crossed over from the prefect's table, and in a husky official voice invited the three to attend in his study in half an hour. "'Prefect's meeting! Prefect's meeting!' hissed the tables and they imitated barbarically the actions and effects of the ground ash. "'How are we going to jest with them?' said Storky, turning half-face to Beetle. "'It's your play this time.' "'Look here,' was the answer. "'All I want you to do is not to laugh. I'm going to take charge of young Turk's immorality, a la king, and it's going to be serious. If you can't help laughing, don't look at me or I'll go pop.' "'I see. All right,' said Storky. McTurk's lank frame stiffened in every muscle, and his eyelids drooped half over his eyes. That last was a war signal. The eight or nine seniors, their faces very set and sober, were ranged in chairs round Carson's severely philistine study. Tulk was not popular among them, and a few who had had experience of Storky and company doubted that he might perhaps have made an ass of himself. But the dignity of the sixth was to be upheld. So Carson began hurriedly. "'Look here, you chaps. I've—we've sent for you to tell you you're a good deal too cheeky to the sixth. Have been for some time. And—and we've stood about as much of it as we're going to. And it seems you've been cursing and swearing at Tulk on the Biddeford Road this afternoon. And we're going to show you you can't do it, that's all.' "'Well, that's awfully good of you,' said Storky. "'But we happen to have a few rights of our own, too.' You can't, just because you happen to be made prefects, haul up seniors and jaw em on spec, like a housemaster. We aren't fags, Carson. This kind of thing may do for Davies Tertius, but it won't do for us. It's only old Prout's lunacy that we weren't prefects long ago, you know that, said McTurk. You haven't any tact. Hold on, said Beetle. A prefect's meeting has to be reported to the head. I want to know if the head backs Tulk in this business. Well, well— it isn't exactly a prefect's meeting, said Carson. We only called you in to warn you. But all the prefects are here, Beetle insisted. Where's the difference? By gum, said Storky, do you mean to say you've just called us in for a jaw after coming to us before the whole school at tea and giving them the impression that it was a prefect's meeting? Pon my Sam, Carson, you'll get into trouble, you will. Hole in a corner business, hole in a corner business, said McTurk, wagging his head. Beastly suspicious. The sixth looked at each other uneasily. Tulk had called three prefects' meetings in two terms, till the head had informed the sixth 
that they were expected to maintain discipline without the recurrent menace of his authority. Now it seemed that they had made a blunder at the outset, but any right-minded boy would have sunk the legality and been properly impressed by the court. Beetle's protest was distinctly cheek. "'Well, you chaps deserve a lickin!' cried one Norton incautiously. Then was Beetle filled with a noble inspiration. "'For interfering with Tulk's armourers, eh?' Tulk turned a rich slow colour. "'Oh, no, you don't,' Beetle went on. "'You've had your innings. We've been sent up for cursing and swearing at you, and we're going to be let off with a warning. Are we? Now, then, you're going to catch it.' "'I, I, I,' Tulk began. Don't let that young devil start jawing. If you've anything to say, you must say it decently, said Carson. Decently. I will. Now, look here. When we went to Biddeford, we met this ornament of the sixth. Is that decent enough? Hanging about on the road with a nasty look in his eye. We didn't know then why he was so anxious to stop us. But at five minutes to four, when we were in Yeo's shop, we saw Tulk in broad daylight, with his house-cap on, kissing and hugging a woman on the pavement. Is that decent enough for you?" "'I didn't. I wasn't.' "'We saw you,' said Beetle. "'And now I'll be decent, Carson. You sneak back with her kisses.' Not for nothing had Beetle perused the later poets. "'Hot on your lips, and call a prefect's meetings, which aren't prefect's meetings, to uphold the honour of the sixth. A new and heaven-cleft path opened before him at that instant. "'And how do we know?' he shouted. "'How do we know how many of the sixth are mixed up in this abominable affair?' "'Yes, that's what we want to know,' said McTurk, with simple dignity. "'We meant to come to you about it quietly, Carson. But you would have a meeting,' said Storky, sympathetically. The sixth were too taken aback to reply. So, carefully modelling his rhetoric on King, Beetle followed up the attack, surpassing and surprising himself. "'It—it isn't so much the cynical immorality of the Biznai as the blatant indecency of it that's so awful. As far as we can see, it's impossible for us to go into Biddeford without running up against some prefect's unwholesome armours. There's nothing to snigger over, Norton. I don't pretend to know much about these things, but it seems to me a chap must be pretty far dead in sin.' that was a quotation from the school chaplain, when he takes to embracing his paramours, that was Hackliot, before all the city, a reminiscence of Milton, he might at least have the decency, your authorities on decency, I believe, to wait till dark, but he didn't. You didn't. Oh, Tulk! You, you incontinent little animal! Here, shut up a minute. What's all this about, Tulk? said Carson. I look here, I'm awfully sorry. I never thought Beetle would take this line. "'Because you've no decency, you thought I hadn't!' cried Beetle all in one breath. "'Tried to cover it up with a conspiracy, did you?' said Storky. "'Direct insult to all three of us,' said McTurk. "'A most filthy mind you have, Tulk. "'I'll shove you fellows outside the door if you go on like this,' said Carson angrily. "'That proves it's a conspiracy,' said Storky, with the air of a virgin martyr. "'I—I I was going along the street, I swear I was,' cried Tulk. "'And—' I'm awfully sorry about it. A woman came up and kissed me. I swear I didn't kiss her." There was a pause, filled by Storky's long, liquid whistle of contempt, amazement, and derision.
"'On my honour," gulped the persecuted one. "'Oh, do stop him jawing!' "'Very good,' McTurk interjected. "'We are compelled, of course, to accept your statement.' "'Confound it!' roared Norton. "'You aren't head-prefect here, McTurk.' "'Oh, well,' returned the Irishman. "'You know Tulk better than we do. "'I'm only speaking for ourselves. "'We accept Tulk's word. "'But all I can say is that if I'd been collared in a similarly disgusting situation, "'and had offered the same explanation as Tulk has, "'I—I I wonder what you'd have said. "'However, it seems on Tulk's word of honour, "'and Tulkus, beg pardon, kiss—' "'Of course, Tulkis is an honourable man,' put in Storky. "'That the Sixth can't protect themselves from being kissed when they go for a walk,' cried Beetle, taking up the running with a rush. "'Sweet business, isn't it?' "'Cheerful thing to tell the fags, ain't it? "'We aren't prefects, of course, but we aren't kissed very much. "'Don't think that sort of thing ever enters our heads, does it, Storky?' "'Oh, no,' said Storky, turning aside to hide his emotions. McTurk's face merely expressed lofty contempt and a little weariness. "'Well, you seem to know a lot about it,' interposed a prefect. "'Can't help it, when you chaps shove it under our noses.' Beetle dropped into a drawling parody of King's most biting colloquial style. The gentle rain after the thunderstorm. "'Well, it's all very sufficiently vile and disgraceful, isn't it? I don't know who comes worst out of it. Tulk, who happens to have been caught, or the other fellows who haven't.' And we—here he wheeled fiercely on the other two—we've got to stand up and be jawed by them, because we've disturbed their intrigues. "'Hang it! I only wanted to give you a word of warning,' said Carson, thereby handing himself bound to the enemy. "'Warn! You!'—this with the air of someone who finds loathsome gifts in his locker. "'Carson, would you be good enough to tell us what conceivable thing there is that you're entitled to warn us about after this exposure? Warn? Oh, it's a little too much. Let's go somewhere where it's clean." The door banged behind their outraged innocence. "'Oh, Beetle! 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 Golden Beetle!' sobbed Storky, hurling himself on Beetle's panting bosom as soon as they reached the study. "'However did you do it?' "'Dear man!' said McTurk, embracing Beetle's head with both arms, while he swayed it to and fro on it on the neck, in time to this ancient burden. Pretty lips sweeter than cherry or plum, always look jolly and never look glum, seem to say, come away, kissy, come, come, yummy, yum, yummy, yum, yummy, yum, yum. Look out, you'll smash the gig-lamps, puffed Beetle, emerging. Wasn't it glorious? Didn't I, Ericum, splendidly? Did you spot my cribs from King? Oh, blow! His countenance clouded. There's one adjective I didn't use. Obscene. Dunno, I forgot that. It's one of King's pet ones, too. Never mind. They'll be sending ambassadors round in half a shake to beg us not to tell the school. It's a juiced serious business for them, said McTurk. Poor Sixth. Poor old Sixth. "'Immoral young rips!' Storky snorted. "'What an example to pure-souled boys like you and me!' And the sixth in Carson's study sat aghast, glowering at Tulk, who was on the edge of tears. "'Well,' said the head prefect acidly, "'you've made a pretty average ghastly mess of it, Tulk.' "'Why, 
"'Why didn't you lick that young devil beetle before he began jawing?' Tulk wailed. "'I knew there'd be a row,' said a prefect from Prout's house. "'But you would insist on the meeting, Tulk.' "'Yes, and a fat lot of good it's done us,' said Norton. "'They come in here and jaw our heads off when we ought to be jawing them. "'Beetle talks to us as if we were a lot of blackguards, and—and and all that. "'And when they've hung us up to dry, they go out and slam the door like a housemaster. "'All your fault, Tulk.' "'But I didn't kiss her.' "'You ass! "'If you'd said you had and stuck to it, it would have been ten times better than what you did,' Norton retorted. Now they'll tell the whole school, and Beetle will make up a lot of beastly rhymes and nicknames. But, hang it, she kissed me! Outside of his work, Tulk's mind moved slowly. I'm not thinking of you, I'm thinking of us. I'll go up to their study and see if I can make them keep quiet. Tulk's awfully cut up about this business, Norton began ingratiatingly when he found Beetle. Who's kissed him this time? "'And I've come to ask you chaps, especially you, Beetle, "'not to let the thing be known all over the school. "'Of course, fellows as senior as you are can easily see why.' Um, said Beetle, with the cold reluctance of one who foresees an unpleasant public duty. "'I suppose I must go and talk to the sixth again.' "'Not the least need, my dear chap, I assure you,' said Norton hastily. "'I'll take any message you care to send.' But the chance of supplying the missing adjective was— too tempting. So Norton returned to that still undissolved meeting, Beetle, white, icy, and aloof at his heels. There seems, he began, with laboriously crisp articulation, there seems to be a certain amount of uneasiness among you as to the steps we may think fit to take in regard to this last revelation of the uh, obscene. If it is any consolation to you to know that we have decided, for the honour of the school, you understand, to keep our mouths shut as to these uh, obscenities, you uh, have it." He wheeled his head among the stars, and strode statelily back to his study, where Storky and McTurk lay side by side upon the table, wiping their tearful eyes, too weak to move. The Latin prose paper was a success beyond their wildest dreams. Storky and McTurk were, of course, out of all examinations. They did extra with the head, but Beetle attended with zeal. "'This, I presume, is a par egon on your part,' said King, as he dealt out the papers. "'One final exhibition, ere you are translated to loftier spheres. A last attack on the classics. It seems to confound you already.' Beetle studied the print with knit brows. "'I can't make head or tail of it,' he muttered. "'What does it mean?' "'No, no,' said King, with scholastic coquetry. "'We depend upon you to give us the meaning. "'This is an examination, Beetle mine, not a guessing competition. "'You will find your associates have no difficulty in—' "'Tulk left his place and laid the paper on the desk. "'King looked, read, and turned a ghastly green. "'Storky's missing a heap,' thought Beetle. I wonder how King'll get out of it. There seems, began King with a gulp, a certain modicum of truth in our beetle's remark. I am uh, inclined to believe that the worthy Randall must have dropped this in feral, if you know what that means, Beetle. You purport to be an editor. 
Perhaps you can enlighten the form as to forms. What, sir? Whose form? I don't see that there's any verb in this sentence at all. And, and the ode is all different somehow. I was about to say, before you volunteered your criticism, that an accident must have befallen the paper in type, and that the printer reset it by the light of nature. No, he held the thing at arm's length. Our Randall is not an authority on Cicero or Horace. Rather mean to shove it all off on Randall, whispered Beetle to his neighbour. King must have been as screwed as an owl when he wrote it out. But we can amend the error by dictating it. No, sir. The answer came pat from a dozen throats at once. That cuts the time for the exam. Only two hours allowed, sir. Tisn't fair. It's a printed paper exam. How are we going to be marked for it? It's all Randall's fault. Tisn't our fault, anyhow. An exam's an exam, etc., etc. Naturally, Mr. King considered this an attempt to undermine his authority, and instead of beginning dictation at once, delivered a lecture on the spirit in which examination should be approached. As the storm subsided, Beetle fanned it afresh. Eh? What? What was that you were saying to McLaggan? I only said that I thought the papers ought to have been looked at before they were given out, sir. Here, here! From the back bench, Mr. King wished to know whether Beetle took it upon himself personally to conduct the traditions of the school. His zeal for knowledge ate up another fifteen minutes, during which the prefects showed unmistakable signs of boredom. Oh, it was a giddy time, said Beetle afterwards, in dismantled number five. He gibbered a bit, and I kept him on the gibber and then he dictated about half of Dolabella and co. A good old Dolabella, friend of mine, yes? said Storky pensively. Then we had to ask him how every other word was smelt, of course, and he gibbered a lot more. He cursed me and McLaggan. Mac played up like a trump. And Randall. And the materialized ignorance of the unscholarly middle classes. Lust for me marks, and all the rest. It was what you might call a final exhibition, a last attack, a giddy paragon. But, of course, he was blind squiffy when he wrote the paper. I hope you explained that, said Storky. Oh, yes, I told Tulk so. I said an immoral prefect and a drunken housemaster were legitimate inferences. Tulk nearly blubbed. He's awfully shy of us since Mary's time. Tulk preserved that modesty till the last moment, till the journey money had been paid, and the boys were filling the brakes that took them to the station. Then the three tenderly constrained him to wait a while. You see, Tulk, you may be a prefect, said Storky, but I've left the coal. Do you see, Tulk, dear? Yes, I see. Don't bear malice, Storky. Storky? Curse your impudence, you young cub, shouted Storky, magnificent in top hat, stiff collar, spats, and high-waisted, snuff-coloured ulster. I want you to understand that I'm Mr. Corcoran, and you're a dirty little schoolboy. Besides being fabulously immoral, said McTurk, one you aren't ashamed to foist your company on pure-minded boys like us. Come on, Tulk, cried Norton, from the prefect's break. Yes, we're coming. Shove up and make room, you colleges. You've all got to be back next term with your yes, sir, and oh, sir, and no, sir, and please, sir. But before we say good-bye, we're going to tell you a little story. Go on, Dicky. this to the driver. We're quite ready. Kick that hat-box under the seat, and don't crowd your Uncle Storky. "'As nice a lot of high-minded youngsters as you'd wish to see,' said McTurk, gazing round with bland patronage. "'A trifle immoral. But then boys will be boys. It's no good trying to look stuffy, Carson. Mr. Corcoran will now oblige with the story of Tulk 
and Mary Yo. End of chapter eight.